Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The idea of communicating with the inhabitants of other worlds is an old one, but for ages it has been regarded merely as a poet's dream, forever unrealizable. And yet, with the invention and perfection of the telescope, and the ever-widening knowledge of the heavens, its hold upon our imaginations has been increased, and the scientific achievements during the latter part of the 19th century, together with the tendency toward the nature ideal of Guthi, have intensified it to such a degree that it seems as if it were destined to become the dominating idea of the century that has just begun. Nikola Tesla, Talking with the Planets, published in Collier's Weekly, February 9th, 1901. And how right he was. Space really is the final frontier, the one place that still seems to be off-limits over a hundred years after Tesla wrote that. But even before Tesla, radio, and rockets, people have had their eye on the stars. Tesla would continue in the same article, quote, The desire to know something of our neighbors in the immense depths of space does not spring from idle curiosity, nor from the thirst for knowledge, but from a deeper cause, and it has a feeling firmly rooted in the heart of every human being capable of thinking at all. Whence does it come? Who knows? Who can assign the limits to the subtlety of nature's influences? Perhaps if we could clearly perceive all the intricate mechanisms of the glorious spectacle that is unfolding before us, and also could trace this desire to its distant origin, we might find it in the sorrowful vibrations of Earth, which began when it parted from its celestial parent. End quote. Tesla was right. Space has dominated human thinking since it began, from our most ancient writings and myths to our modern sci-fi and science. Space has been central. Ra in Egypt, Helios in Greece, the Celtic god Belenos, the Hindu god Siruria, Tai Yang Gong in China, all of them sun gods. And of course, all the planets today are still named after Roman and Greek gods. It doesn't stop there either. The constellations we see in the night sky are all named after mythical creatures and heroes. Not least of all Orion, a Greek hunter, whose constellation seems to have been involved in the construction of the equally mysterious pyramids of Egypt before anyone called the stars Orion's Belt. Lesser-known lore from Native Americans to tribal Africa also has no shortage of stories about the stars. What do they mean and who's up there? Almost universally, when someone asks about the heavens, we look up. And in Tesla's time period, we were still at the height of thinking about not just life, but full-blown civilization on Mars. In 1877, Giovanni Schiaparelli famously described features he could see on Mars as canali, meaning channels in Italian, which was mistranslated into English as canal, as in canal route, something only advanced civilizations build. Americans like Percival Lowell would become infatuated with this. This sparked one of the most amazing cases of, I don't know, pareidolia. 
Soon, other astronomers started confirming the observations. Lowell even produced maps of Mars based on what he saw, and he wrote three books, Mars in 1895, Mars and its Canals in 1906, and Mars is the Abode for Life in 1908. These weren't just passionate amateurs either. Lowell himself was no slouch, and guys like Charles Young, who is a professor at Dartmouth and Princeton, would also go on to link solar flares to the magnetic storms on Earth. The more people looked at it, the more differences they saw. But rather than question the canal idea in the first place, many of them just took it to mean it must be canal digging and movement on an enormous scale. Then, also realizing the planet looked like a big desert, they managed to fit that into the canal narrative as well, and concluded that many of the canals must be used to transport water from the poles. They even saw dark spots and craters on Mars, but they assumed that they must be cities in the places where the canals met up. You can see maps of the Mars canals that Schiaparelli and others would draw. It's really a neat bit of history. Anyway, science at the time still held to and taught the idea that the universe was eternal and had no beginning, and the idea of a space ether, or a medium that all things move through, was still popular. This is really the same sort of trap that people fall into with religious texts. The things we observed often just get reinforced into the box that we want them to be in. Really, it makes you wonder how much modern academic science might be doing the same thing in one area or another, and we just don't know. I mean, in this same early 1900 setting, weird things like radium, which is very radioactive, was finding its way into toothpaste and hair cream. Now, about this same time period, Jules Verne wrote From Earth to the Moon, and he followed it up with Around the Moon. George Orwell would also pen War of the Worlds in 1897, Space was really taking on a bigger presence in modern Western culture. It shouldn't be surprising, since an often overlooked part of the Industrial Revolution is not just an increase in leisure time, but an increase in the availability and quality of telescopes, which let increasingly more people look up a little more clearly and see that these weren't gods or mythical places on the horizon, but entire star systems of their own. So in 1901, it's not surprising that when Tesla wrote Talking with the Planets, he would announce that he had the ability to send and had also received signals from space with powerful equipment of his own making. He even suggested that communication would come down to an understanding of mathematics, something that we see again in Carl Sagan's book Contact. But on that very first signal, Tesla wrote, quote, I can never forget the first sensations I experienced when it dawned on me that I had observed something possibly of incalculable consequence to mankind. I felt as though I were present at the birth of a new knowledge or the revelation of a great truth. Even now, at times, I can vividly recall the incident and see my apparatus as though it were actually before me. My first observations positively terrified me, as there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural. I was alone in my laboratory at night, but at the time, the idea of these disturbances being controlled signals did not yet present itself to me. The changes I noted were taking place periodically, and with such clear suggestion of number and order that they were not traceable to any cause then known to me." Tesla then goes on to say it wasn't some form of interference, citing his extensive experience with electricity and radio before picking back up. Sometime afterward, the thought flashed upon my mind that the disturbances I had observed might be due to intelligent control. Although I could not decipher their meaning, it was impossible for me to think of them as being entirely accidental. The feeling is constantly growing on me that I had been the first person to hear the greeting of one planet to another." End quote. 
The very next paragraph in the article is titled, Communicating with the Martians, where Tesla hypothesizes that the signal he received came from Mars, but admittedly it could have been somewhere else too, and that it would not be difficult to replicate his findings given time and focus by himself or someone else. So let's go back to the time period and that canals on Mars idea. Mars specifically has been the main focus of the human search for ET for quite some time. Astronomers of the day recognized that where Mars sat, it might be possible for life to be supported. Venus was still in the mix too, and Tesla mentions that in his article as well. We hadn't yet discovered the hellscape that both of them really are until the 1960s and the 1970s, with the USA landing on Mars and the Soviet Union landing on Venus. The Mars Canal idea wouldn't even be completely abandoned by those in science, including by people in NASA, until Mariner 4 sent back the first pictures in the 1960s, and Viking 1 landed in the 1970s. But we weren't done with Mars. Viking 1 took the picture of the famous face on Mars, in the Sidonia region. So sure, the canals weren't there, but what the heck was this? Now it became less of a Martian New York City, and more of a Martian Giza Plateau. In the same area on Mars, people will claim some of the rock formations even resemble pyramids. Now in 2001, the Mars Global Surveyor took higher resolution photos and showed the Viking photograph of the face was really just shadows on a rock formation, but there's still plenty of doubters. Now the jury isn't totally out on Mars. The current Curiosity rover is looking for evidence of water, an environment that may have once hosted life. But we're not looking for little green men now, just maybe some bacteria or some signs of a simple plant life. No doubt we have turned our attention to a couple of other places in the solar system too. Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, might hold an ocean of water underneath a thick layer of ice. Europa Clipper is a mission planned for the 2020s that'll check that out. Scientists continuously look further and further out with telescopes like Hubble, Kepler, Chandra, and soon the James Webb Telescope, which, by the way, I'm super pumped for. But while seeing new worlds is awesome, and finding plankton, or heck, some algae on Europa would be the greatest discovery of all time, none of it even comes close to what it would mean if we actually received a signal from another civilization. Space has remained virtually off-limits. Rockets are incredibly expensive and dangerous, and even if you get off the ground, it only gets more dangerous as you go. There are countless near-miss stories in every space program, and plenty of real disasters like Apollo 1 and Columbia. The effects of being in space for long periods of time shouldn't be ignored either. Astronauts on Skylab in 1973 mutinied after only a few weeks in space, and after a record-setting 520 days in space, American astronaut Scott Kelly had a host of health issues that took months to recover from. We only managed a few days on the moon during the Apollo missions, and Mars increasingly looks like a one-way trip. Most of our space exploration to date, in our own backyard, has been done by robotic landers like Viking or Huygens, and rovers like Opportunity and Curiosity. But as amazing as those robots are, there are still numerous failures and severe limitations to what they can do. But telescopes, both light and radio, have proven to be reliable ways for us to really reach out into the cosmos to test our ideas and search for answers. This episode is going to focus on the search for extraterrestrial life and the signals that we receive from space via radio telescopes. If you're like me, when you think of telescopes, you probably think of a tube with a big mirror used to capture light, or a series of lenses that magnify an image. But radio telescopes are basically big satellite dishes. They detect, well, radio waves, and really anything in the electromagnetic spectrum. 
Radio telescopes have the advantage of being ground-based, which makes them cheaper than space telescopes, and the ability to operate any time of day gives them more work time than ground-based optical telescopes. They can be used individually or linked up in an array to work as one giant telescope. I'm not going to do an extensive history on radio telescopes or radio astronomy, but for this show I want to focus more on the mysterious signals and the prospect of aliens. But here's some famous radio telescopes that you should search for later to get an idea of what they are. There's the VLA, the very large array in New Mexico, that uses 27 massive satellite dishes on train tracks so that it can rearrange itself depending on what's needed. It's done a lot of work recently studying black holes, and it's made a lot of appearances in sci-fi movies. There's the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. It's one single gigantic telescope that's bigger than a football field and taller than the Statue of Liberty. There's the Lovell Telescope in Britain and the giant Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico that is the single largest dish in the world at over 300 meters wide and, of course, the Allen Telescope Array in California. There are a lot of groups that use the radio telescopes for various things, but among the most famous one in the context of ET is the SETI Institute. SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They're a nonprofit group that spends its time poring over the collected data using available telescope time to scout the stars for ET. The first real signal that grabs my mind is of course the one I already mentioned. Nikola Tesla claimed to have detected in his lab in Colorado Springs around Christmas in the year 1900. At the time, he wrote a letter to the Red Cross in New York saying, quote, I have observed electrical actions which have appeared inexplicable. Faint and uncertain though they were, they have given me a deep conviction and foreknowledge that ere long all human beings on this globe as one will turn their eyes to the firmament above, with feelings of love and reverence, thrilled by the glad news. Brethren, we have a message from another world, unknown and remote. It reads, one, two, three, end quote. This event would be the topic of his February 1901 article, Talking with the Planets, that I quoted at the beginning of this episode. At the time, Tesla suggested that Mars might be the source, or possibly Venus, given that both planets were believed to be habitable. This discovery set off a frenzy given the enthusiasm about Mars at the time. But whatever Tesla heard, it remained a mystery until 1996, when Dr. James Corum and his brother Kenneth Corum, both with electrical engineering backgrounds, began testing a new theory. The Corums knew how Tesla's equipment was set up, and based on the data collected long after Tesla from space probes like Voyager 1, the Corums suggested that Tesla could have detected signals originating from Jupiter that are associated with storms on Jupiter. Computer models even show that it was very plausible that these storms matched up to the timeline of Tesla's original experiment. They could also reproduce the same kinds of signals, since we know what kind of radio setup Tesla was using. And as if that wasn't enough, the timing of the event would have put Mars very near Jupiter in the sky at the time, so for an observer on Earth, it would absolutely appear as if Mars was the source. You can find this research online. The paper is titled, Nikola Tesla and the Electrical Signals of Interplanetary Origin, and it was published in 1996. So Tesla probably didn't find aliens, but it's still an event that adds to the mystique that surrounds Tesla. Tesla's radio was remarkably advanced for his time, and that's even mentioned in the paper in the 90s. And his detection from signals from space was still more than 30 years ahead of the next guy. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now the next major event wasn't and isn't considered alien, but I feel like it's worth mentioning just because I spent so much time on Tesla so far. Carl Jansky was an engineer who studied at what is now OU. Radio telescopes were used to study the atmosphere and storms. In 1933, after studying the signals he could hear, he put them in three boxes. Nearby storms, faraway storms, and this strange unknown hiss. Initially, he thought maybe the hiss was being caused by the sun, but after closer inspection, he found that the duration of the hiss was actually more aligned with the sidereal day, as opposed to the solar day. The sidereal day being the Earth's rotation relative to the stars. The hiss was closest in the direction of what we now know is the center of the Milky Way. The first confirmed star noise. Carl wrote a paper that had a cool title, Electrical Disturbances of Apparently Extraterrestrial Origin, but it was largely ignored by the academic community and by Bell Labs, who couldn't justify paying for the research. But Carl's work is really considered the birth of radio astronomy, detecting something then, doing the work and figuring out what it is. Again, 30 years after Tesla's Talking with the Planets. Now between Carl Jansky and my next signal is some not-so-unimportant history. World War II, and then the famous Roswell incident in 1947, just a year after a Nazi-designed V-2 rocket launched from New Mexico and took the first picture of Earth from space. The Groom Lake airfield that would become the later famous Area 51 was also established and there was an incredible surge in what we know as UFO sightings around the world, but particularly in the West. The term UFO didn't catch on until the 1950s, but even that's interesting. The Air Force began using the term UFO because the term that preceded it, flying saucer, had become sensationalized, and also because flying saucer was an inadequate description to cover the growing diversity of reports. In 1967, Postgraduate student Jocelyn Burnell was looking at data from a radio telescope when she discovered a signal that appeared to be pulsating at regular intervals of about 1.3 seconds. The sound was very much unexpected, 
and the regularity first led her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, to insist that it was just some sort of interference or electrical noise. But when they realized it wasn't, the idea came to their heads that it could be a signal from another world. The signal was even named LGM-1 for Little Green Men. And astronomy had even gotten good enough by then that they could tell right where it was coming from. But the idea of Little Green Men didn't last very long. They were soon finding similar sounds from other areas of the universe, and ultimately it was determined that a rapidly rotating neutron star, now called a pulsar, was the source of the sound. That star is called PSR B1919 plus 21. Now, ten years later, in 1977, SETI would find what is referred to as the WOW signal. It got that name from Jerry Amon, the scientist who first saw the data, because he circled the data on the printout and wrote WOW next to it in all caps. This signal continued in the data for a full 72 seconds the telescope was able to target it before disappearing, and it has never been heard again despite repeated attempts to focus on the same area. To this day, the WOW signal remains a real candidate for ET. The logic here, aside from being an unexpected anomaly, comes from a paper written in 1959 in which physicists suggested that an advanced civilization might try to broadcast a signal at 1420.41 MHz, because that is the resonant frequency of hydrogen, the most abundant element in the known universe something any advanced civilization would surely figure out. The WOW signal came in at 1420.36 MHz and 1420.46 MHz, which is also interesting because that is nearly the same amount above and below the hydrogen frequency, in either direction. The 72-second duration of the WOW signal is also interesting. The Big Ear Telescope had limited directional ability, it was dependent on the rotation of the Earth to scan different points, and it just so happens that that means it could only scan any one given point for a total of 72 seconds. An artificial ET signal would be expected to fade in as you approached the zenith and then fade out as you moved away from it, but remain constant. The WOW signal was also a very narrowband signal, which may imply focus, and both of those were true. There are a handful of theories that try to explain the WOW signal, but there's still no clear frontrunner, and not one that seems particularly likely, given the inability of newer and more sensitive telescopes to find anything at all. The anomaly originated somewhere near the Sagittarius constellation, near the star Tau Sagittari, roughly 122 light-years away. In 2006, a NASA balloon called Arcade, short for Absolute Radiometer for Cosmology, Astrophysics, and Diffuse Emission was launched to attempt to measure the heat and signal decay of the early universe. But it stumbled on a signal that was six times the intensity of anything they expected. This event is referred to as the Space Roar, and it still has scientists baffled. Another event that raises more questions is the Lorimer Burst, a signal discovered in 2007 named after Duncan Lorimer a professor at West Virginia University. It was actually recorded in 2001, which makes you wonder, what might be hiding in the massive amounts of data that's just been ignored or misidentified? The Lorimer burst was what is called a fast radio burst. 
FRBs are a blink-and-you-miss-it spike in signal intensity that encompass a broad range of frequencies. Fast radio bursts are a newcomer to the mystery signal scene, with the main theory being that they are a signal dispersed over great distances by interstellar plasma, similar to the way that a prism produces a rainbow out of a beam of light. Since then, FRBs have been detected all over the place, with explanations ranging from black holes to terrestrial interference to aliens. Radio signal SHG B02 plus 14A was discovered by the SETI at Home project in March 2003. It was found on three occasions in the 1420 MHz range, the same as the WOW signal. But this one gets weirder, because there's no visible stars at the spot that this should be at, and whatever it is, based on what we know about Doppler shift, has it spinning 40 times faster than the Earth. In 2012, a signal called FRB 121102 was reported by the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. It repeated in 2015, the first one to do so. It is associated with a dwarf galaxy 3 billion light-years away. A very recent FRB from fall 2018 called FRB 180814 was also caught. It repeated six times, another candidate for ET about 1.5 billion light-years away. In 2015 in Russia, a short, two-second-long signal was detected by SETI on one satellite at 11 GHz in the direction of star HD164595 in the constellation Hercules, roughly 95 light-years away. It has also not been heard again despite attempts to find it. One theory suggests the signal was an emission from an isotropic beacon, a theoretical device that broadcasts a uniform signal in all directions for the express purpose of interstellar signaling. The catch being, it's what's called a Type II civilization device, which is way beyond ours. Isotropic beacons were thought of as a possibility by NASA and SETI in a 1971 research initiative called Project Cyclops. I feel like I should include this here too. The year the WOW signal was discovered was the same year we launched the Voyager 1 probe, the ones that carry the famous gold records with sounds from Earth, including greetings in different languages and music and a map of where we are. Voyager 1 is only about 22 billion miles from Earth, which is only just barely into interstellar space outside of our solar system. So think about where that probe might end up in a few thousand years, and then think about Oumuamua, the very recent is it an asteroid or is it not object that came pretty close to Earth. It even has chief astronomers at Harvard and Penn State suggesting it might be an alien visitor mostly because it's actually accelerating, and that acceleration doesn't seem to be related to anything in our solar system, or even what normally happens to a comet. Now regardless of what Oumuamua is or isn't, we also shouldn't think that we're the only ones who've sent out Voyager-type probes. There may well be even more mysterious signals or satellites in space that just haven't been found in the vast amounts of data we've collected over the last few decades. And if you're the conspiracy type, maybe there's even a few that are being kept secret. But if we did one day confirm ET, what do we do? I mean, for one, the distances. So we get a signal that's a billion years old. Would the senders even remember sending it? Would the planet or star even still exist by the time our return signal arrived in another billion years? The other issue. Who's sending and who's receiving? You grow up hearing, don't open the door for strangers, and as an adult, it's, 
don't open those unknown email attachments, or hey, ignore the robocalls or you'll just get more spam. Those are all very real and valid questions that are relevant to this topic. The late great Stephen Hawking even questioned our practice, saying, Our first contact from an advanced civilization could be equivalent to when Native Americans first encountered Christopher Columbus, and things didn't turn out so well for the natives. Even if you're extremely charitable to Columbus and the first Europeans to come to North America, you still can't get around the fact that it brought new diseases and wreaked havoc on the natives. A problem that still very much exists here on Earth when we talk about unfettered migration or immigration. What sort of alien diseases might be present? Hawking goes on to say, One day we might receive a signal from a planet like Gliese 832c, but we should be wary of answering back, he said. They will likely be vastly more powerful and may not see us as any more valuable than we see bacteria. This is the classic planet snatcher alien scenario if you ask me, where they just show up and wreck shop immediately because we don't matter to them. It also makes me think about hunting and fishing here on Earth, where we use calls and lures to deceive the animals to their doom. Or, how about straightforward manipulation or gaslighting? What if they promise or claim one thing until it slowly needs to another? This is a really common setup in sci-fi, where the aliens really just take advantage of the wow, wink wink, that preoccupies us. After all, our own history is full of groups with the upper hand, dominating the lower group, and in some cases, even coming across the locals like gods. What makes us think they'd be so different? Ideally, if they figured out space travel, it means they set aside a lot of the problems we face, or they just finished the experiment that is governance until they got it right and they became peaceful travelers. But that seems pretty far from what's happened here on Earth. For every good aliens scenario you could think of, we have plenty of examples of conquistadors or manifest destinies that don't really go too well for the locals. Then, you stop and realize that in 2012, we sent Twitter and Stephen Colbert into space towards the origin of the WOW signal with a full power blast of the Arecibo Observatory with over 20 times the energy of the best transmitter you or me could possibly buy. It sort of makes Space Force sound like a missed opportunity to me. The reality, though, might be even more cold and empty. The kinds of signals that we generate on Earth have only been happening intentionally for about a hundred years. So best case scenario, someone listening about 118 light years away might only be just catching whatever noise Nikola Tesla sent out. Followed in a few years by a barrage of broadcasts about World War I, the Great Depression, and then World War II. Maybe we're the crazy war-hungry aliens that the other aliens want to avoid. I mean, imagine that. Hearing from people who've never even been in space, discover the power of the atom, and use it immediately to start killing each other. Of course, this only coming shortly after, us thinking, digging a giant ditch in the dirt, calling it a canal, makes you an advanced civilization. And what about the Prime Directive? What if the aliens aren't violent, but they're just ignoring us intentionally because they don't think we're ready yet? On that same note, we're moving away from the kinds of signals that penetrate space, and switching to other forms of communication that don't really go anywhere in space, like cable TV and internet, or cell phone towers. We will only appear as a blip on the radar that quickly goes silent as we move from analog communication to more forms of digital communication. Soon the only things that might be left is high-powered military and airport radar. And maybe the aliens did the same thing. Maybe they've gone radio silent. Or maybe they're out there looking too, but they're looking for a totally different set of data and oblivious to what we're doing. 
and we totally shouldn't think we have a monopoly on obvious or what qualifies as advanced. And how about Voyager and Oumuamua? Maybe thousands of alien probes passed us 10,000 years ago, broadcasting that they'd give us free technology and free food, but we weren't around to hear it. Now, despite advances in telescopes, both optical and radio, and in robotic missions like Curiosity, to me, the search for life so far has really only shown us that we're alone. I don't know how else to look at it. We only have a few scraps to go on that could, well, maybe tell us we aren't alone, but despite what we want to believe, we just don't have anything solid to go on. So I think we should continue to be objective and file the aliens under faith, or maybe even rationale for now. That doesn't mean they don't exist, or that I don't think they exist, because I absolutely do think they exist, but I can't prove it, and we shouldn't let that make us blind. Or else the same aliens might come back, only to hear us talking about a new version of space canals. Growing up, my dad always said, worry about what you can control. And I think we should be applying that rule to this topic. We don't know what's out there, and we have a limited ability to find out. So what can we control? We can control what we are sending out there, and we can control how quickly we start to control and understand our own cosmic neighborhood. Neither of those sound like a bad idea if you ask me, regardless of E.T. finally picking up the phone or not. And I'm on board with the idea of spreading out. If you're rolling the cosmic dice, you really need more than one planet. And who knows, maybe we're the super advanced aliens, and we'll well discover that one day, we're the ones eons ahead of everything else, and we're the ones who go visiting them. There's just something about space, or maybe it's everything about space. I mean, after all, the only things we all see everywhere on Earth, regardless of our differences, are in space. The sun, the moon, and the stars. And even if there are aliens out there, their view is still pretty much the same. They're just as isolated as we are in the cosmos. It's another constant reminder that maybe we aren't all so different from fish stuck in an aquarium. Maybe out there somewhere is salvation. Perhaps our doom, or maybe nothing at all. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. sounds in this episode, Phantom from Space, Sneaky Snitch, Soaring, String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod and available at Incompetech.com. Additionally, Outer Space, available on YouTube. Also, the LGM-1 sound was from Lamino's The Great Silence on YouTube and The Sound of Hydrogen by Minute Physics. If you like lore and legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter, at loreandlegends3. You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes. And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lauren Legends. See you next time. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.